Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Blahos, and I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larison. Together, we are declaring that the empire has no clothes and giving voice to like-minded journalists, experts, and advocates also fighting the good fight. Today, we welcome Rajan Manan with Defense Priorities on his recent writings about Russia and Ukraine and ending the war. But before that, let's talk about the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who we now know was struck down by an Israeli Defense Force's bullet on May 11th. We know that because the U.S. entity, the U.S. security coordinator, was investigating the forensic evidence determined this week and determined this week that the quote unquote badly damaged bullet came from an IDF gun, but her killing was quote unintentional. I'm quoting here directly, the USSC found no reason to believe that this was intentional, but rather the result of tragic circumstances during an IDF led military operation against factions of Palestinian Islamic Jihad on May 11th, 2022 in Jenin which followed a serious series of terrorist attacks in Israel, end quote. That is coming from the State Department uh, press statement. So I want to know when forensic technology got so advanced that they can tell the intention of a shooter just by looking at a bullet. That must be some powerful microscope that they are looking through. But I'm sorry, isn't this akin to an investigation of a police shooting, say in Baltimore, determining that a black man's killing by cops happened to take place during a rash of armed robberies in the city? What does one have to do with the other if the man wasn't a suspect? The whole statement is a pusillanimous attempt by the Americans not to insult their Israeli friends ahead of a trip by President Biden. And I am sure this does anything to suggest justice is going to be found here. Dan, uh, what is what is your reaction to this? Uh, well, uh, my reaction is, is still the same as it was when this came out. And it came out on the 4th of July, if you can believe it, because uh, I, I think they wanted to bury the statement. They wanted to, as few people as possible to see it. Uh, but but people did see it and, and were disgusted by what they saw, because this, this is an attempt to, to whitewash the crime. It's an attempt to, to deny that there was a crime. And, oh, well, yes, they, there was a, a shot fired from the IDF position, but we're not, we can't conclude anything specific about who, you know, which person actually pulled the trigger or who actually fired the gun, because they're not looking into it. The, the, the fixation on getting the bullet from Palestinian Authority has always been sort of a, a red herring in that uh, there was never any intention of pursuing the matter further once they had examined the bullet. And that becomes clear from from the statement that we've seen. Uh, they, they wanted to put this behind them. They wanted to put it uh, out of the way so that it wasn't hanging over Biden's head, as you said, uh, so that he could go on his trip to Israel uh, and, and the West Bank. He's going to visit the West Bank as well uh, so that he can uh, somehow uh, skirt this issue. Uh, but, but I don't think it's going to work because everybody that has paid close attention to this story knows that the, the independent media uh, investigations of the shooting have all reached the same conclusion, and and they they strongly suggest that this that there's nothing that suggest that supports a conclusion that it was an unintentional shooting. Uh, rather, there there are strong indications that it was uh, a targeted shooting uh, aimed at journalists wearing press vests 
when nothing else was going on. They were attacked uh, perhaps just because they were journalists. We, we won't know until there is a real investigation, but unfortunately, judging from the State Department's uh, release on Monday, there, there's not going to be any uh, serious attempt to have that investigation. And so the Israeli government will be able to say, uh, you know, oh, it, was, it was a terrible accident or it was a terrible uh, mistake, uh, but we're not going to hold anyone responsible for it. And I mean, unfortunately, this is this is typical of the way that uh, Israeli forces uh, treat Palestinians, uh, whether they're they're journalists or not, uh, under the occupation. And this is the the, the larger problem that the, the Biden administration is even pretending to care about right now. Um, the the Abu Akhle family released a statement in response to the State Department, and there, there are just a couple of sentences that I want to read from that statement that I think sum up the the core problem uh, with the way that the Biden administration has handled this. And so their, their statement says, the truth is that the Israeli military killed Shireen according to policies that view all Palestinians, civilian press or otherwise, as legitimate targets. And we were expecting that an American investigation would focus on finding the responsible parties and holding them accountable, not parsing over barely relevant details and then assuming good faith on behalf of a recalcitrant and hostile occupying power. In other words, all available evidence suggests that a U.S. citizen was a subject of an extrajudicial killing by a foreign government that receives billions of dollars in American military aid each year to perpetuate a prolonged and entrenched military occupation of millions of Palestinians. And so that's that's really the the, the major issue here that uh, the Biden administration is trying to, to sweep under the rug. And it's it's an outrage. Yeah, I mean, you can really see them squirming in that statement about being uh, an unintentional shooting and then and then having to add that this was part of a, a week-long um, string of terrorist in, incidents. And, 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 and I find it so insulting that they are trying to link the terrorist incidents or the, 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 the rash of violence that was going on at the time uh, with the killing of this journalist. One has nothing to do with the other, but you can see them and you can almost feel them squirming through the words um, as to not insult their Israeli friends. And uh, it's particularly ahead of a very sensitive trip by President Biden to the region. But who, you know, who is in charge here? And as you mentioned, we give $3 billion a year, the U.S. does, in U.S. taxpayer dollars to Israel they are taking our money and they are building weapons, they're building technology. These are this is mostly military money here. Um, we are basically funding their country's defenses, but yet we constantly approach this relationship as though we are the supplicant, that we have to come hat in hand. So we're the Biden administration is doing everything to lay the groundwork for the supplication ahead of this visit when it should be the other way around. Or let's find a way to have a more balanced relationship in which neither side is the supplicant. We don't give $3 billion a year to an already wealthy, very well-defended country. They're, they're very much um, enabled to carry on their own defense without us. They're a nuclear power country in the middle of the Middle East. They're the most powerful um, military-wise, but yet we give them this money as though they need it so badly 
to maintain their strategic military edge or whatever you call it. Um, let's find a balance here because when we have human rights abuses occurring right in our face and we can't say anything about it because we don't want to rock the boat. I mean, I, I don't really know what kind of relationship that is, but it's kind of cringy from where I'm sitting right now. Definitely. And, and of course, uh, the, the murder of Shireen is just one of many cases where Palestinian civilians uh, get killed and there's no accountability for them. I'm reminded of that exchange that Representative Omar had with Secretary Blinken last year during one of the, the hearings uh, when he was testifying. And she asked him uh, in, a, in a question related to the, the ICC jurisdiction, uh, which the U.S. does not recognize and neither does Israel, she said, where do victims go for justice if they have suffered at the hands of American or Israeli forces? Words to that effect. And of course, she was attacked for this and her words were misrepresented. But but her basic question stands. And the the answer that Blinken State Department has just given to uh, the family of Shreen Abba is that there's nowhere to go. You, you won't get justice from the U.S. government. You won't get it from the Israeli government. Uh, if you are uh, a Palestinian on the receiving end of violence from Israeli forces, uh, you're out of luck. And, and that is the, the, the cruel and oppressive system that our tax dollars help to reinforce and, and to, to uh, keep going. And, it's, uh, and so it's, it's not just this one case that should trouble us, although obviously we should be very angry about this one case. Uh, but it is, it is the whole system uh, that allows crimes like this to be committed uh, with impunity uh, and with uh, essentially the a, 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 at least a yellow light from the United States, if not a green light. And what's so sad about this is that along with the, all of the, the the ground laying for the visit to Biden in Israel, there there is there is all of this other ground laying going on in the Middle East, in which the United States is building a security alliance with Israel and other Arab states, including reportedly Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and all under the auspices of these Abraham Accords. And all of this is going on while the Palestinian issue is being ignored. The Palestinian question, uh, peace in the Middle East, we used to talk about that all the time, prospects for a two-state solution, all of that has been disregarded in these Abraham Accords. And so you have these despots, these monarchies um, that are ignoring their own people who demanded that uh, their, their countries and their governments stand up for the Palestinians. They're completely being ignored. These uh, countries, including Saudi Arabia, um, the UAE, Jordan, and others um, are... Um, I mean, they've, they've seen the benefit of joining um, in some sort of agreements with, with um, Israel. I mean, Saudi Arabia is coming along, but it seems as though that um, not only has the United States abandoned, um, you know, its role as some sort of fair broker in the Palestinian-Israel um, situation, um, but we're enabling the whole region to ignore the, the Palestinians. And I don't think we should underestimate the reaction um, to Shireen's murder. I mean, this is this is like a wave over um, the streets 
of of the Arab world, maybe not the governments, but the streets. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out overall. Definitely. I mean, there's there's always been a a big gap between uh, what most of the the populations of countries in the region have wanted with regard to Palestine and what their governments were prepared to do about it. Uh, The governments uh, traditionally have been interested in paying lip service to it, uh, maybe exploiting it for their own purposes, but but never really making much of an effort uh, to to resolve the conflict. Uh, now several of them realize that it's more convenient for them or more uh, expedient for them to cut a deal where they just simply sideline that issue entirely and and bury it uh, as as a way of getting more cooperation with Israel. And uh, that. And of course, that has nothing to do with with peace, uh, despite the way that these normalization agreements were presented. Uh, they, I mean, they're 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 often called the Abraham Accords. I, I really don't like that name uh, because it's it maintains or it creates this illusion that this has something to do with religious concord among the different Abrahamic religions, uh, which it has absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, and I, I would think a more accurate way of describing them as, is as the apartheid and arms sales accords. Because that is what you're actually facilitating through these agreements. That's what you're getting more of. And that's what you have to look forward to in the future if more governments sign on to them. And so that's uh, that's not the direction I think we should be going. Uh, but as you say, that's where the Biden administration is taking us. like to welcome to the show today, Rajan Menon to the show. Rajan is the Director of Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities and the Anne and Bernard Spitzer Chair Emeritus in International Relations at the Powell School, City College of New York, City University of New York. He is also a Senior Research Scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of several books, including Conflict in Ukraine, The Unwinding of the Post-Cold War Order, co-authored with Eugene Rumer, and The Conceit of Humanitarian Intervention. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Daniel. So happy to have you with us today. Uh, We've been meaning to get you on for some time. I had come across one of uh, your articles recently in Tom Dispatch, uh, which we reposted at Responsible Statecraft under the title, How Can the War in Ukraine End? Let's Count the Ways. In it, you outline three broad paths that you think the Ukraine war could take at this point. Can you possibly take us through that? Yes, absolutely. So one way it could end is that the Russians decide that the northern campaign that they began with, with the idea of toppling the Kiev government, was a mistake. And they have since, as you well know, consolidated their drive in the east and the south, that is the Donbass, Zaporozhye province in in the southeast, and uh, part of the Black Sea coastline. Whether they want to make Ukraine landlocked country remains to be seen, but Putin may decide that he has enough now to take back home and show a substantial victory and avoid the danger of overextension. Despite the common narrative, I've never seen Putin as a gambler or risk taker. 
He hasn't been that in Georgia. He wasn't that, uh, that in Syria by nature, a kind of cautious person. And he is somebody who learns as time goes by. So that's one possibility that they will hang on to what Russian nationalists call Novorossiya or New Russia, the lands taken by uh, Catherine the Great and others in the 18th century, East in Ukraine, Southern Ukraine, the Black Sea coast. So that's one possibility. And I think that he will do that for two reasons, not to overextend himself, but secondly, to have his forces dig in, force the Ukrainians to come to Russian-held territories and roll them back. They don't have the equipment for that. They have equipment for parrying armored warfare, but not for really launching and holding territory. Meanwhile, I think with standoff strikes, he will do as much damage to the rest of Ukraine as possible to try to bring it to his need. So that's, I call that the partition option. The second is related to the first, and that is that he will hold on to territory, but there will be a negotiation in which he gets to keep some territory, maybe he will cede some, but the exchange will be that Ukraine will be a neutral country. And this is an option that I have long thought we missed an opportunity to do, uh, both the Ukrainians and the United States, and we have some blame to bear for that, as does uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, because in the run-up to the crisis, the Ukrainians were told that the Bucharest summit declaration of 2008 that opened the door to Georgia and Ukraine stands, and the Ukrainians therefore had no reason to open negotiations on neutrality, nor would we with the Russians. But in March, Zelensky put that on the table, but by then the guns had started firing and it was too late. The second is a neutrality option. The third I, I did at the behest of a friend of mine who is on the other side of this debate and who really thinks that Russia will collapse, there will be a democratic Russia, and so on. Let me say that whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I see no evidence whatsoever that there are economic pressures and political pressures that Putin's government cannot handle. And I think this is wishful thinking. But let us assume for a moment that somehow there is a change in Russia. And we have to keep that in mind because had you told me in 1982 that the Soviet Union would collapse and it would do so largely peacefully without a gunshot being fired, I would have thought you were crazy, you plural. But it happened. So if there is uh, such an eventuality, I think two things will happen. I think it would be wrong to think that any democratic Russian government will rush to hand back territory that is under Russian control. There'll be fierce blowback, and they will have other business to take care of that's more urgent. I don't think any democratic government will give back Crimea. Uh, it was a territory that was, in 1954, summarily handed to Ukraine by Nikita Khrushchev, the then Soviet leader who happened to be Ukrainian. It's Ukraine's only Russian-majority province. And I think that even if a referendum had been held that was completely clean, it is quite likely that Ukraine might have, I'm sorry, Crimea might have uh, opted to, to join Russia. So the third one would be a democratic Russia that makes significant territorial compromises and simply lives with the idea that Ukraine is going to integrate further westward. Now, that's not a threat because that's what they want for Russia as well. Don't ask me to predict which of these will happen. <laughs> You, you thought that would, that would be my next question, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'll venture a prediction. I mean, I think that this idea that we have that because 
this was a war in which Ukraine was attacked by Russia, and I can say more about my thoughts on that later, that therefore uh, good will prevail over evil. I mean, this is a particular American disease, if I may say so, to assume, to sort of let one's wishes father, father one's thoughts, and we will continue fighting until that happens, no matter what happens, and only the Ukrainians can negotiate. I mean, that is complete strategic abdication on the part of the American government. Um, but I think that the partition option is really quite quite likely because we hear a lot about how many tanks and other weapons the Russians have lost, how many troops they've lost, but we have very little evidence from the Ukrainian side. And war is a relative thing. So unless you have information about Ukraine that you can compare with Russia, th these statistics are meaningless. And I happen to know that the Ukrainians are reaching deep into their society, including in Western Europe, to dragoon people to go and fight in the East, some of whom are middle-aged men with no military experience. So I think that the economic cost of the war, the Ukrainians need about $60 billion just to balance their budget, plus the military toll that the war is taking, could well, along with Western economic fatigue, lead to this outcome. Do you think that there's any acknowledgement or do you hear any acknowledgement of that in the White House, in Congress today, other than hearing the, the clarion call for more weapons, more support? You see op-eds in the major newspaper saying that we need to have more stomach for the fight. We have to continue to support, if not ratchet up support for Ukraine, because without that support, Without more sophisticated weapons, they they will uh, fall into uh, destruction. Uh, but there there seems to be a message that we could actually help them turn the tide. Do you believe that? I see no evidence of any scaling back of our goal to the extent that we have one. What troubles me is I'm not entirely clear what our goal is. Is it to help Ukraine move Russia back to the lines before February 24th? Or is it to underwrite the goal that some Ukrainians have now put forward as the definitive goal, which is to also expel Russia from all of Donbass, including the two statelets and Crimea? That, I think, would be a fool's errand. So it, 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 it's not clear to me what we're doing. The second thing we haven't asked ourselves is, at what point, given how deeply entwined we are in this war, will the Russians decide that they have no choice but to treat us effectively as a co-belligerent? Right, and, 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 and what that means. So I'll give you one example of what bothers me. I was reading a, a piece recently, it's in Russian, um, but I can send it to you and you can Google translate it by Alexei Arbatov. Uh, Alexei is somebody I've known for a very long time. He's by far Russia's smartest nuclear strategist. And he said, Russian nuclear strategy about first use has evolved from attack on the homeland, we'll use nuclear weapons. That's obvious. Attack to vital interests, we'll use nuclear weapons to uh, discussions about at what point will we have to think about this option if foreign powers intervene in conflicts in which we are intervening. Now, I'm not predicting nuclear war, but I think the threat of escalation always looms in the background here. And to think that Putin is bluffing, that he's crazy, this, that, and the other, I think is simply to flee the facts. So we have to be mindful of that. Now, having said that, I have a great deal of sympathy for Ukraine in the following sense. I've been a lifelong critic of NATO expansion. 
But I think it's very difficult to make the case it was a clear and present danger to Russia that necessitated a full-on assault on a, on a country, turning about a third of its population to refugees, two-thirds of its children into refugees, and committing all, uh, all manner of, uh, of, of crimes. I think there was a way to avoid this. I think we could have avoided it. The, the, the narrative now that NATO expansion had nothing to do with this, that Putin is a congenital ex- expansionist, doesn't answer a basic question. If he was so bent on conquering Ukraine, why between 2000 and 2014, 14 years, did he not show the slightest sign of wanting to do that? Do you think that there is a parallel pathway for diplomacy going on here? I personally don't see it, but do you get the sense that there are there are any efforts being undertaken to bring this to some negotiated settlement? No, because we have taken the position that all communication with Russia will be shut off, even in Bali now, Secretary Blinken is doing a fine dance to not even be seen in a photograph with Lavrov, right? So the channels between Moscow and Washington during one of the most dangerous crises in the post-Cold War period have been shut off. And we have so poisoned the well by having ourselves viewed by the Russians as a co-belligerent that we're not in any position to do any mediation because we're seen by them as a partisan. So who does that leave? The Turks and the Indians, uh, I don't think China will be acceptable as the mediator of either Ukraine or um, or the United States. But frankly, can the Indians and the Turks do the heavy lifting that's needed to, to, to make this happen? Two things have to happen. Uh, either Ukraine has to decide that it is losing the war and has to settle no matter how badly it doesn't want to settle, or Putin will overextend himself and decide, I need half a loaf, not the whole loaf, and therefore I'm willing to cut a deal. We're not at this point. I would be surprised to see this war end anytime soon. It is catastrophic for Ukraine because the bill, as you know, for rebuilding it, and this is not a definitive bill, is already up in the neighborhood of $750 billion. Yeah, that's going to be quite a large sum to have to come up with. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, related to that, to the, the cost of rebuilding Ukraine, uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on uh, conditions for sanctions relief in, in the event that we do finally get uh, a peace settlement uh, sometime in the future. Uh, what conditions should the U.S. and its allies set for lifting all uh, recent sanctions, the sanctions imposed this year, uh, and should sanctions relief be made contingent on reparations for Ukraine? Right. That's a very good question, Daniel. Um, first of all, l- let me just say something that you didn't ask, and I'll get to what you asked very quickly. I think we had a complete misunderstanding, which we ought not to have had based on the history of sanctions, that the sanctions would bite Russia so hard because they were very comprehensive and done with great uh, speed that they would be forced somehow to come to the table. What we know about sanctions is when countries do something that they, for good or ill, decide is vital national interest, they are prepared to endure a great deal of pain as witness Cuba, as witness Iran, as witness North Korea. And Russia has more resources than all of these. We also fail to anticipate the boomerang effect of sanctions on our own economies, because Europe and the United States now are facing very, very bad economic times. If you look at the bond market, the inflation market, 
projection for a recession. Now, to your question, I think, first of all, uh, you need to have a diplomatic engagement to figure out whether the two sides are willing to talk. And it seems to me that for every step that the Russians make, halting the war, uh, allowing observers between the, the lines held by the belligerents, and then making any territorial compromises, you would have to, in order to get them to do those things, provide phased sanctions relief, because they're not going to give you something for nothing. And you can, we can all say, as, as, as long as we want to, and to work purple in the face, that Russia is the evildoer here, Russia is the wrongdoer here. I'm a realist. I look at the facts on the ground, and I know that uh, it is very hard to make a great power like Russia move away from territory that it has without some kind of quid pro quo. And the question is, are we willing to do it? Will whoever is president then, because the war could extend beyond that, uh, have enough political cover to do it? And that's often the problem, especially when we talk about uh, the possibility of sanctions relief, even when another state complies with our demands, uh, there, there's tremendous resistance to providing them with any of the rewards that have been promised. And, and so there's even more resistance to offering sanctions relief up front. Uh, unfortunately, in, in our system, sanctions tend to become ends in themselves. And I, and I fear that's what's happening with the Russia sanctions, uh, because in the minds of many people in Washington, it gets linked to this idea that we're going to keep them in place basically permanently until Putin dies or is overthrown or or you know, until some distant end state is reached, uh, which does nothing for Ukraine at all. Uh, how, how, uh, how should we think about uh, sanctions relief with Russia and, and, and shouldn't we be trying to give them some incentives by, by being willing to offer some upfront? Correct. I think, you know, one of my intellectual heroes is Reinhold Niebuhr. And he pointed out that there is a kind of intrinsic quality in the United States for reasons that I won't get into because it's complicated in the way he explains it to moralize politics, to, to kind of make it a, a, as, a, as a struggle between good and evil. Once you start doing that, the very concept of compromises becomes a dirty word, because who in the world would want to compromise with evil? But the fact of the matter is that wars are ended by negotiations and diplomacy, and this will not be an exception. I think that there ought to be definitive Russian commitments to do things to change the status quo. I think ideally there ought to be a commitment to help with reconstruction. I think the seizing of Russian assets outside sets a very dangerous legal precedent. And while I'm not an international lawyer, I happened to recently talk to one and he said, it is a much more complicated matter than people realize. But ceasefire, uh, peacekeepers in the middle, pull back some gesture toward reconstruction and um, the willingness to accept a Ukraine, which if it's neutral has very strong security guarantees, but those have to be linked to an answer to the question, if they do some of that, what will we do? Taking the position that they have to do all of it and then we'll think about sanctions relief, it seems to me is to vastly overestimate our bargaining leverage, given what the situation is on the ground, just as a matter of fact. Right. And and we continue to hear a lot of agitation for escalation from our side, from within the US, 
Uh, there's been a lot of irresponsible commentary about humiliating Russia, bringing the hammer down on their government, and so on. Uh, the, the latest one was Elliot Cohen saying we should use the Chicago rules from the untouchables, uh, suggesting that he had not actually watched the movie to the end, uh, all of which promise a dramatic escalation of the war and a widening of the war. Uh, how concerned are you that the U.S. and its allies will eventually be pressured into escalating uh, and that that leads then to a general war with Russia? Here is the danger point. If Putin decides not to do what I suggested in scenario one, that is to settle for a large chunk of Ukrainian territory in the east and the south, and to be flush with victory and go forward, and to take the rest of Zaporozhye province, maybe cross, across the Dnieper River, um, then you are looking at uh, not only Ukraine's defeat, but possibly the disappearance of Ukraine from the map. Since we have made such a strong commitment that we will not allow that to happen, we will be in a very difficult position and no power should want to be in that position, either to escalate in a place where all of the advantages are in, in Russia's hands, notwithstanding its pretty abysmal military performance by virtue of sheer geography, or to de-escalate. De-escalating is difficult now because the it's not just the Republicans, the neocons, but even the liberal internationals, there's a consensus that there has to be an open-ended commitment to Ukraine, that this is the definitive war of the 21st century. This is a war between autocracy and democracy. And once you paint it in those colors, you create a narrative where even if you as president want to compromise, it becomes very, very difficult. Let me also add that we ought not to forget who President Biden is. I mean, he has been a fairly unrelenting hawk. Um, and see, if you mix all of this together, I think it will be difficult. Now, what might make compromise possible is I am not sure how much pain, because of the blowback from the sanctions, Main Street is actually willing to take. And if the war becomes one that is seen as bringing significant economic consequences to the American public, that will register in the political class because politicians are concerned about votes. And then if the Ukrainians continue to be doing badly, uh, they may not, that might change, uh, we, we may have some conditions for negotiations. Within NATO, it's more complicated. I mean, to, to engage in a gross oversimplification, NATO has been bifurcated. You have the Balts and the Poles on the one hand, that because of their history with Russia, think that any compromise is anathema. And then the Germans and the French who won't say so out loud anymore, and, and possibly the Spaniards who feel that there has to be some compromise uh, to end the war quickly. One reason for that is the EU will be left largely writing the check for this war. And there are countries that are net recipients of EU largesse because the EU has a policy of bringing, uh, avoiding gross disparities within the European Union. And if you are looking at such a large check to be written to Ukraine, countries that are net beneficiaries now will uh, have to sacrifice something. And I don't think they would want to do that. Well, I think we've run out of time, unfortunately. Um, I have one key question. Have you ever considered going into government? Because I'd rather have you in the State Department right now than anybody else we have there. As it happens, I was a I was in government for one year, and it convinced me that I have the best job in the world. <laughs> I don't report to anybody. I can write 
what I what I want, when I want, and work where I want. And I'm kind of an anarchist in that respect. So no, I have no plans to go in the government, nor should any government of this type want me in its midst. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the problem. I mean, people who are truth tellers don't uh, end up in government. And when they do, it's like a soul sucking experience. and They get out as fast as they can. We got to figure out a way to, to change that, though, because there are so many people um, on our side of the aisle here um, who are just talking a lot of sense. And I feel like we're not getting a lot of that. Uh, well, we're the done one thing, and I'm sure you've experienced the same. So I live for part of my life in the Midwest, part of my life in the South. But when I've written books and gone and talked to places outside the coasts, the realist message, especially among military people, let me add, because they actually have gone to war and gotten shot at and don't know what it's like. They're not armchair generals. There's a great deal of, of, of resonance. And the very fact that restraint is now being attacked as an irresponsible policy is a wonderful contribution because it means that it has so slowly seeped into the political discourse. It'll be a long haul to make it a kind of potent point of view, but I think there's much more support for it out there in, if I might say, real America than we might imagine. I think you're right. I know you're right. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, please, uh, Rajan Menon, if you want to read more about his work, uh, he's got several books out there and his perch is at Defense Priorities. So just Google Defense Priorities and you'll see a host of his recent writings and and on YouTube. You're everywhere. So thank you for sharing some time with us today. Thanks, Gil. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.